I hate the word practice makes perfect because you're never going to reach the perfection. Practice makes better. But if you really believe that practice makes perfect, then why are we still practicing if I'm number one in the world or if I'm world champion? You practice to become better every day. And this is the beauty of it, that you can always get better. Always. What is up, you sexy bastards? It is your boy, Squashball, a.k.a. Rabbi Cantlose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talk with the number one ranked squash player, Ali Farag. Now, if you don't know what squash is, it's not the vegetable. It is a game you play in a court, kind of like racquetball, if you've heard it, but with a smaller ball. It is one of my favorite sports. I'm super addicted. Shout out Joe Kelly for getting me into it. And I had the pleasure of talking with Ali Farag, who's number one in the world. Uh, thank you to Connor O'Malley from the PSA for connecting this interview. We talked about so many amazing things about what does it take to actually be number one in the world? Would you rather be number one or number two? What's the actual, some of the key things it takes to be at that level? He talked about what do you do when you lose? Talked about short-term memory. I talked about Brad Gilbert winning Ugly Book. Talked about studying other champions. He's studying all of the top champions. And to be at the elite level, it's really a game of inches. And so how do you get those inches? Man, this was such an amazing conversation. I am so excited to share it. I am rooting for Ali every single match. And I think whether you're a pro athlete or you want to be a pro in business or in life, there's a lot to gain from this. Go Ali. Check out Ali Farag on Twitter. It's A-L-I-F-A-R-A-G as well as Ali Farag on Instagram. As well, if you haven't played Squash, go check out Squash. If you're looking to buy or sell software for your online business, go to AppSumo.com. Yeah, what else are you going to do today? Go to AppSumo.com. It's an awesome site with really fun copywriting and amazing software at great prices. As well, check out My First Million. I know you're already on your 10th million, but if you're looking to get your first million, it's a great podcast. My buddy, Sean and Sam. Awesome content about business. That's My First Million podcast. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Hopleaf70. He left a review saying, love this guy, to the point advice, funny, checks ego at the door, and takes you down a learning journey to help you grow your business. Listen, damn, I love every single one of you. Y'all are so amazing. And if you want to shout out in a future episode, just leave a review. We ever listen to this podcast. I check every single one of them. It's got to be a, a day for you too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm here playing the Windy City Open. It didn't go very well last night for me in the quarterfinals, but it's all good. It's all good. I have I've got my daughter and my wife with me here. She's also on the PSA tour, on the Squash World Tour. So definitely, they make the loss a lot better. Oh, man, I'm sorry. I heard about it today. I I was watching the match earlier today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It happens, I guess. I don't think it should happen. I think Ali is undefeated forever. <laughs> I'm like Team Ali Farag, man. Uh, thank you very much, man. I wish there was something like this in sport. I would take it all day long, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately, it doesn't happen. Even the best Federers and Nadal's and Djokovic's, they lose. It does happen, you know? Yeah, I met you briefly at the Houston Open. I think we, we said hello. I, uh, I came down to check it out with Connor. I know, but I didn't know, I didn't know that this was, your, uh, this was your home. I wasn't sure. Yeah, I'm from the Bay Area, but I uh, I live in I live in Austin, Texas now. Nice, 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 nice. Yeah. It's good out here. I mean, I, we have we just got some squash courts. Oh yeah, two three years ago, started playing, and then just the past year, I'm like, I love it. Yeah, yeah, that's good, man. So you've been on court a lot. Well, this, how much is a lot? Like twice a week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What once twice a week? Uh, I mean, as long as you're regular, that's good. Are you normally in Egypt? Where do you live? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm based out of Cairo, but you know, we're on the road all the time. You saw me in Houston last month. Now I'm in Chicago. Uh, after this, I'm off to London and then back home for a couple of weeks and then off to England again and then home for a couple of weeks and then New York and then another tournament in Egypt and then Mauritius and then back home again. It's, it's, it, we're always on the go, but it's fun. I can't complain. Dude, I can't wait. I'm, I'm so curious to hear more about this life, man. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's, it's a lot of fun. But it comes with its own challenges that people don't often see, you know. They think you're just playing a game. And it's a lot more than that. You've got your pride on the line, your glory on the line, your your income, obviously. Everything. Oh, my God. Because if you're playing, you're like, I got to pay for my child. My wife has to eat. Exactly. My only source of income, right? My only source of, of revenue. and uh, But it's more than more than the income. It's more, you know, you've, I'm blessed to have graduated from with a good degree. I'm leaving an opportunity cost there, right? So I have to make it up, not financially, but like to justify it to myself that I didn't go to the private sector or I've done a regular desk job. Now that I'm doing squash, I want to justify that it was worth doing squash. And thankfully, it's been going a lot better than I expected. So no complaints whatsoever. Yeah, man. Hon, what, what did you expect out of it? It's a funny story, really. When I started playing squash when I was younger, I come from a very academic family, very academic background. 
that I always thought that the junior career was going to be the end of it for me, and then I'm going to go to college, and then afterwards I uh, I'm going to go to the private sector and, and work as an engineer or whatever it may be. And then I had to serve in the army right after college, right? So for a year. And thankfully, my army service was quite mild, was quite light. So I had a lot of time to train or a, a lot of time to do something else on the side. But at the same time, I wasn't allowed to work because you cannot apply to any job without the army certificate. So I was, okay, I might as well just give it a go for a year and see how it goes. And I jumped from very bottom in the rankings all the way to world number 22 in a year. And I reached the quarterfinals of the world champs. I was touring the world, doing the thing I loved the most with the person I loved the most, who was my fiance at the time. Now we're married, thankfully. And, uh, and, and I was like, there was nothing better than this. And, and I just wanted to prove a point to myself and I guess to the world that you can be a good student and then go and do your thing. Cause all the people at the age of 17, 18, they pick one or the other. And I feel like now, thankfully, after I've done this and Amanda Sophie, I'm not sure if you know Amanda, she's, she was also a Harvard graduate, was now uh, number three in the world or number four in the world. She did the same thing. And now it's started rolling. More and more people are doing the same. They're going to Ivy League schools or high prominent schools, and then they're going back to the circuit. So I guess I wanted to prove that this can be done. And now, it, first of all, it did happen, which is, you know, you, there is no guarantee that when you go on the pro circuit, like very handful, yeah. a handful of people can make it to the top of the three. And the fact that I did it and won the world championships twice in a short span of time, I can't ask for a better career, really. But I'm always greedy. I'm a very bad loser, so I always want more. <laughs> Man, I have so many questions there, dude. So, yeah. like, how much does a squash player make, like a professional squash player? Not much, not much. I mean, as a world number one with good sponsorship, I mean, now it's uh, because Egypt is doing so well in squash, the sponsorships have increased recently. But before then, it was even less. I would say, I would say I, I make... 400k US dollars a year on a very, very good year, on a very, very good year, which is great, which is great. But then how many people are world number one? And and if you go to world number two, you take a hit right all of a sudden. I wouldn't say half of this, but like 70% of this. You get a cut of 30%. The, the world number one does a huge difference in, in your sponsorships, in the prize money and everything. So our main sources of income are prize money from tournaments and sponsorships. You play some exhibition matches here and there but those are the two main things and and sponsorships are based on your ranking and obviously the prize money is depends on how good you do in the tournament or how well you do in the tournament so i i would say a three four hundred k on a very very good year and how many very good years you can have in your career right so it's not like tennis or golf where you you're done for life after you're done you haven't made enough money that you can live off after for the rest of your life. It's not like tennis or golf, you know? Yeah. You win a tournament and you, you get $3 million, $4 million. So if you win 10 of those throughout your career, then you're set for life, I guess. What does like number 10 or 15 in the world make? You think with that stuff, like 50K, 60K? Yeah, yeah. I want to say, well, so basically you go one, then two, then three to four, then five to eight, then nine to 16, and then 17 to below because each round you make more money, right? So let's say an average person as a top eight player from five to eight, they play 12 tournaments a year. Prize money is about 5K for the quarterfinals. So that's 60K. And then another maybe 40, 50K from, so I would say around 100K net because you make around 130 or so. And then you pay 30 for your travel, for your expenses, for your coaches. So I would say about 80 to 100 net as a top eight player. I mean, it is good, but it's not the most lucrative sport you know well i'm i just turned 40 so do you think i have a yeah. chance to be world number like top 10 do you think it's too late <laughs> like is there Should any chance for me? it is very late yes. <laughs> yeah oh too late yeah, too extremely late. late yeah 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 is there like a senior squash there is double squash which is less strenuous on the body and it's easier to pick up and it's played with a hard ball it has become more competitive <laughs> again, but I guess this is a route you can go through. <laughs> yeah. It's too late. Too late, man. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you're doing well in life. You don't need it, man. You don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, yeah. I think about, I do think about that because I'm like, what I, I think about you and I think about these other elite athletes. I'm like, I guess I'm an athlete in, in the business world, right? And I'm trying to perform. It's all about performance. I mean, we're the same as artists. We're the same as you. You know, we all perform in a way or another. You said something earlier that I thought was interesting. You said uh, something, there's a lot that no one sees. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I see you for, I guess, 45. I always, by the way, I always watch you. Oh, wow. 
that's a pleasure, man. It's my honor. This is what I do like during during work. It makes work more fun because I'm watching you. I watch the matches. Ah, I love it, man. I love it. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. You know what? There is a lot that people don't see behind the scenes, of course. And and I mean, if you talk to any athlete, I mean, we have to endure a lot. I mean, to be a top professional now that the science and the technology have evolved big time and that it's become more and more competitive, people go to the extreme. I think that's a bad statement to say, but I don't think professional sports is healthy. You exert more effort on the body and the mind that it is it is born to do that you just wear out after your your professional career and i think to be able to compete at the top level because everybody else is doing the same so for me for example i train i do a fitness session whether it be in the gym or on the track or on court from 10 in the morning until 11 11 30 and then i take a snack and then i play squash from noon to 1 1 30 then i go back and i have a nap of lunch of course first and then i have a nap and then i'm back again on court from 7 to 8 30 for match play and that's only the playing time. So you don't take into consideration the warm-up and the cool-down. I'm putting workload on my body for six hours a day. That's tough, you know. It does take its toll on your, on your body and, more importantly, on your mind. You know, it's, uh, it's not easy. You, when you're sore and when you're tired to wake up the next day and do the same thing, and then you've got something in your life that is putting you off, and then you still have to do it consistently yeah, because, you know, your peers that you're competing with are doing this and then you've just had a bad loss and you've lost confidence and then you have to go and you have to listen to your coaches when they're telling you that you have something that you have to work on so with all that hard work on the body you still have to have this mind intact to be able to be receptive to be coachable and then you you have a loss of confidence and do i really need to work on this am i not on the right track and then all these things come into play and then you have to be sane Throughout all this, you have to stay sane. And it's not easy. And honestly, no non-athlete can understand it. And I'm extremely lucky to have my wife and to have Karim Darwish, who's a world, former world number one himself, as my coach and my mentor, that they've been through these situations. And when I talk to them, they understand what I'm feeling. If you talk to someone on the outside world, it, they don't take it disrespectfully or you, they don't take you lightly. It just they don't know the feeling. So it just... This feeling of being drained and having too much pressure on yourself is not understood by many, unfortunately. And even myself, when I was still in college, I was playing competitively, but I wasn't playing professionally. And my wife was already on the circuit. When she would try to convey this message to me or this feeling to me, I wouldn't grasp it completely until I was actually in it. I guess in any any field of life, the more ambitious you are, the more pressure you put on yourself and the less you accept any loss. As I was telling you, I did lose yesterday and it happens in sport, but I'm very unhappy with myself. I feel like I should have done better and I really need to go back to the drawing board and get better. I feel you, man. Today, uh, yeah, I had some tough stuff at work and I, I've definitely, it's a, it's not like on the court, but I can definitely, I feel for you. Any job is, is extremely intense and extremely tough. I, I mean, listen, to be on top of the tree of any work and I guess any ambitious person, they don't want to be on top of the tree to be, to compare themselves to other people, but they just set the benchmark very high to themselves because they believe in themselves. And I'm sure that's what you do. I'm sure any successful person in any field of life does this. And to reach that, it does take its toll on you. And nobody ever said it was going to be easy, you know. it's If it's easy, I guess it's you're not going to be... Anybody could achieve it. And I, I mean, it's a cliche, right? But it's, it's very true. You put this pressure... I mean, Noor and I, my wife and I, we always talk about this. When we have so much pressure on ourselves and we feel like, why are we doing this to ourselves? We sit back and we think about our goals, and this is the goal we've set for ourselves. So we shouldn't feel sorry for ourselves. If you want to feel sorry for yourself, just accept to be in the top 30, top 20 bracket, which is a great achievement. I mean, if you talk to anyone in the world and you say, I'm one of the best 20 players in the world, they would think you're a great player. But for yourself, you know you can do it. I am curious. So for yesterday's match, like, what did you observe? I love that you called yourself a poor loser because I don't feel like enough people are. I'm a horrible, I'm not a great winner, but I'm a really bad loser. I always see you as so nice, too. I'm like, Ali is the nice guy. He's always happy on court. That's, I guess that's what I think. Well, I'm glad to be conveyed this way, but internally, <laughs> I'm a very bad loser. Like, Noor keeps telling me, I can't believe that you've achieved so much in, in your sport and you still feel it so bad when you lose. And, and, and I guess it is who I am and it takes me, and as, as I told you, because I've got my wife and my daughter with me here, if it weren't for them, I would have been uh, just isolated in my room and rethinking about the match and replaying it in my head over and over again. I guess 
you need to be a bad loser in a way, but not a bad loser towards anyone or pinpointing that or feel sorry for yourself or feeling like your opponent did that or the referee should have done better or your coach or whoever. It's just a bad loser in a way that, okay, now I've lost. It's not because of no reason. You've lost because of one, two, three, four, and go back to the drawing board and work on it and come back stronger. If you just say it's just another loss and it's fine, progress is going to be a lot slow. What do you think it was yesterday? I started off well, I guess, and I and I won the first. The second was all right. The third was better. I guess I was playing all right. But then once I lost that third, I, I lost a bit of confidence in the strategy that I had and I started losing it and I was going too short too early because I didn't have enough confidence in and and this is exactly what preparation does to you when you prepare well you know even if it doesn't go well for you okay I'm gonna resort to this plan if not then I'm gonna go to plan b and all the way down to z but yesterday I had it prepared but didn't execute it well I was telling something to my mind and I was executing something differently and this is only I wouldn't say not being mentally strong but not being mentally well prepared and it's something that I sh- I should know better I've been through it many times I guess no matter how many times people tell you you shouldn't do that you should do this and you, it doesn't happen without experience I have to go through those experiences and not only once you're gonna have to go through them once and twice and three times and it is a learning process no matter I love listening to the top players like Ronaldo or Federer or Nadal and until this very day with all that they've achieved keep saying we're still learning there are still so many things to, to know about ourselves about the game this is what i am i'm only 30 i'm not even 30 yet i want to learn more and more every day so when you go like between matches you go to the side like what do you tell yourself like i, I see the coaches come or sometimes i see your wife come like what are you what are you telling yourself before the pandemic the coaches were allowed to come and speak to us but then now because obviously of social distance and it's getting better now and hopefully coaches are going to be back with us soon but for now, as I told you, I have it prepared in my head with my coaches pre-match that if this happens, I'm going to do this. If that happens, I'm going to do this. And you draw back on your experiences as well. It's not something like written in stone, right? You also feel it on court and how your opponent is feeling today and how the court is playing, how you're feeling confidence-wise. And these things come into play and then, okay, now I want to play more on his backhand. I want to play with a faster pace. I want to play with more bite on the shot. It's so many technical things that you want, but you have to have confidence in what you're telling yourself because what happened yesterday, I was telling myself something and then I kept doubting myself. And then I had it, I never had a clear plan afterwards. At the top level, the opponent smells this. Once he sees the non-confidence in you or the lack of confidence, he jumps on it and he pounces on it. And Marwan is, is best at doing this. I watch probably, I don't know, maybe 10 hours a week of squash. I play you mm-hmm. know two to three hours a week. What is like pro level strategy? Like, what, what are you thinking in terms of when you come against a player like you had? It's a tricky one because at the end of the day, squash is only six shots, right? Or five shots. So it's all of the top players from one to hundred. They master all five, six shots of the game. It's just about who executes them better with a higher pace and with a better accuracy. You know, it's always a trade off between pace and accuracy because the faster you want to play, the more you lose your accuracy. So it's, Sometimes I go I go on court with a player that I feel like I'm faster than them. Today, I would, okay, I don't care about accuracy as much as long as I put some work into his legs and I play at a faster pace and then this is when he's going to wear, wear out afterwards. Then some other players, they're fitter than me or they're faster than me or they read the ball faster than me. So, okay, today I'm going to work on my accuracy. And obviously, it's not that extreme. Sometimes you have to mix it up. Go slower, go faster. But then... The basic strategy is like the beginners. It's exactly the same. At the end of the day, you want to be dominating the middle of the court. Your opponent is doing most of the work. So you, your ball is always supposed to be in the corners, in the deep corners, in the front and the back. And then when you get the opportunity, you go for your shot. It's as simple as that. But then obviously it gets more and more complicated. It's like I'm asking you, what's, what's the strategy in soccer? Go Put the ball in the goal, in the net. But then how do you do it? It gets more and more complicated as you go more professional. I think it's fascinating. I don't know if enough people hear that how much winners are dissatisfied. I, I noticed for myself in the, the business stuff, it is, um, I tend to be pretty hard on myself as well. Like at AppSumo, we hit our revenue and I was thinking tomorrow, we need to like acknowledge it. Like, hey, good job. Like everyone did a great job on it, but we're, we're kind of like, okay, what about the next thing? I guess it's a tough balance to strike. You know, you want to appreciate it. Yeah. Celebrating the baby steps because if you put, you set yourself a very ambitious goal, which is great to do, but then throughout this goal, then you have to set baby steps. So ever since I started, my goal was to become world champion and world number one. But then starting from rock bottom, 
it's not going to happen overnight. So if I only have this in mind, every time I lose, I'm going to feel like I'm so far from my main goal. So you set this goal and you believe in it. And then you set baby steps. So I started, I want to be to become in the top 50. Once I become in the top 50 and then top 30 and then top 30, then top 20 and so on and so forth. And then not only ranking wise, performance wise and beating a certain opponent and so on and so forth. And celebrating those baby steps keep you motivated day in and day out. And then I guess, yes, all winners are dissatisfied because I, I feel like satisfaction. Dissatisfied is not the right word, but I want to always be satisfied and, and happy with what I have. But not hungry anymore is the beginning of the end. If you're not hungry anymore, you might as well just go and look in a different feed. Because if you're not hungry anymore, people, again, people smell it. And they're going to become hungrier than you. I know. I lost in ping pong a few days ago and I didn't cry. And I was like kind of disappointed. Like <laughs> this guy beat me. And no. I'm like, what's going on with me? Maybe I'm getting too old. I'm like this even in PlayStation. I mean, my wife gets, I mean, she laughs at me with the one I play with my cousins and my friends. And we keep teasing each other. And we, we never get into a fight, but we get very competitive that she feels like, you're crazy, you know, like you're competitive enough in squash. You don't have to meet in every field of life. But I guess this is how we're born. And I'm, I'm sure if she, would, she were to play PlayStation, she would be even more than me because she is very competitive as well. Do you have like a mindset as you go into the matches or doing between games? Are you like thinking stuff? Are you, what are you telling yourself? Very much so. So Mike Quay, my Harvard head coach, who's the best at giving mental advice. And he always puts me in the right mental state. He always says that when you're panicky, thoughts do happen to you rather than you are the one who's thinking. So you want to stop that process. A lot of weird thoughts come into play when you play. So I don't want to lose again. Have you trained all this to come and lose again? Like those thoughts, they're never going to help you on court. So he always says, go back to the basics and go back to the performance. How do you want to play the next rally? The more you force this thinking, the more you make the other thoughts disappear. You know, there is no chance that you let your mind not think, but then control what you think of. Feed it performance kind of, of thoughts that it throws away your demons. It's easier said than done, of course. We all go through those spirals in our matches and I don't want to go back home. I don't want to lose again. Ali, stop being a child. Ali, come on, man up. All these things, they come through my mind all the time. I'm not going to lie. But I always try to combat them with... Just think of your performance at hand. Next rally, how do you want to play? Do you want to play long? Do you want to play fast? Do you want to play short? Do you want to go for your shots too early or you want to be patient? The more you think about the performance itself, then you're going to feel start playing better and then you're going to get the confidence is going to come. It's not the other way around. And then results are going to fall. Again, all of this is easier said than done. It takes years of work on your mindset. And until this very moment, yesterday, I completely lost it. And I was thinking exactly that in the fourth. I was, Ali, come on. Are you here? Are you going to do the same thing again? And then I lost. It's an ever-evolving journey. And you have to accept that. It gets tough after a while. Every time you go through it and you lose, come on, you're going to do it again. But then it is how it is. Well, you're also flying to the city. Like You only play a few key matches a month. Exactly. So you want to make the most out of it. And oh, you keep thinking about all those trainings that you've done in the gym, on the track, with your coaches, all the technical stuff, all the tactical stuff, all the, the sweats and, and everything that you're thinking of. But then again, you shouldn't be thinking that way on court. Of course, you do think that way, but these are the thoughts that you want to not think. Sometimes I wonder, Ali, and I'm curious your take on this, would you rather be number one for like a month or number two for like a year? Because like sometimes being number one, it's like they're coming for you. Like, you're the one that everyone's hunting. This is a very interesting question. But like, when you started your career, you know, you're like 76, then you're 20, yeah. and then you move up. Yeah. I'm always asked whether would you prefer being world champion or be world number one. It's controversial, but for me, it's a clear-cut world number one because it shows consistency throughout the year rather than just one week that you do well and you become the, you, you win the world championships. Whether I, should, I would be world number one for a month or world number two for 12 months or for a full year, Okay, if I'm world number one for a month, what would the other months be? <laughs> it also depends on where I am. I don't want to be world number one yeah. for a month and then and then world number 50 for the rest of the year. But I would rather be consistent. So whatever that, wherever that is, I would rather be consistent because I wouldn't say it's easy to, be, to get to the top. Obviously, it takes a lot of hard work and you have doubts whether you're ever going to be at the top. But then it's a lot harder to be consistent in anything in life. Because as I was telling you at the beginning of the call, 
you go through a lot of doubts, a lot of personal things in your life, a lot of lack of confidence and all of these things, the only response should be more and more training. And we lose it sometimes. Sometimes I wake up and I do not want to leave bed or I don't want to leave the house. Or even if I want to leave the house, I want to take a vacation. Obviously, I do sometimes. Sometimes it's better for the mind, but you do it because it's better for you, not because you really don't want to do it anymore. And consistency is the thing I would say I'm most proud of in my career, rather than winning the world championships twice or the fact that I've been progressing ever since I started and then remained on the top two, top three for the past few years. It's definitely the one thing I'm most proud of uh, throughout my career. I love that. What do you think separates a number one versus a number two? Character. Because there are so many great players in anything. It's the character that, that differentiates one from the other, you know? As I told you, in the matches, we face a lot of adversities. Like in your job, you face a lot of adversities. And how you come out of it, so many people just give up or give excuses to themselves or just say, oh, it's, it's not for me. Or I've played well, but the referee has done this. Or the opponent has cheated that way. Or, 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 or. Character is what differentiates and what separates the very, very top from the top. That's my opinion. I, I always say to my wife, I am not the best player in the world, even when I'm world number one. Tomorrow, I'm going to lose that world number one spot. Paul Cole is going to overtake me. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But hopefully, hopefully, by the end of the season, I will try. I'll do my very, very best to regain it. But obviously, he's playing very well. Mohammed is coming, raging for it. A lot of players are. But I'll do my very best. But aside from this, I tell Noor, I'm not the best player on a very, very good day. If you take the top 10 players, I wouldn't even be in the top four, top five on a very, very good day. But I guess. I'm very proud that on the tough days, I managed to... That's why I'm very disappointed in yesterday because it was a tough day and I didn't manage to uh, to hold myself in the right place. And I guess character, if you look at Mohamed al-Shurbagi, how consistent he's been in the past 10 years and so many matches throughout his career he should have lost and he turned them around purely by his character. It's very inspiring. Look at Nick Matthew, look at Greg Gauthier, look at Nadal in the final of the Australian Open. Who would have said that he would have won that from two love down? Just pure character that pulled him through. Look at Federer. They say he plays with grace. He plays with ease and he doesn't go. He does go through a lot of hard work to win so many matches against people that he should have won easily against. But he just accepts. He puts his ego in the bin and just, okay, today I, he's better than me. Show me how you're going to beat me. Okay, now I'm going to show you why I'm Roger Federer, not because I play with grace, not because I'm more talented than you, but because I'm born for this. And I guess I've learned that from Mohamed Shurbagi and Rami Ashur and Karim Darwish and the past generations. The Shurbagi, there's there's two of them, right? Yes, Mohamed is the one who's been world number one for over 50 months. That's the older one. And he was world champion. And, and Marwan is the younger one that who am I lost to yesterday. And he's up and coming as well. And, and I wouldn't say up and coming. He's been on top for He's been in top in the top five, top eight for the past three, four years. So he's and he's won major titles as well. So, but Muhammad has been the, the has had the more prolific career so far, at least. I was just trying to think because he has a brother, so they can play a lot of each other. But then you have a squash wife. I guess it's easier for me because we rarely compare to each other. I think Marwan and he we have a good relationship, and he speaks to me a lot about it. And he, at least back in the days, more than now. He's compared to his brother because his brother is older than him. And his brother was so quickly rising to the top that when Marawan was going or transitioning from juniors to professionals, he was always being asked, okay, Muhammad has done this. Why are you late? Or Muhammad has achieved that. Why are you not doing it? It's the hardest thing to understand when you're younger is that every person has got their own story to write or their own book to write. Look at Djokovic. When he was younger, he didn't win the, his first major title until 2008, where he was maybe 21. Nadal has won the, his first one when he was 18. And look at them now. They're pretty even. And you might say that Djokovic is going to overtake him. Everyone has got their own timeline to write things. And there is no right or wrong, you know. He was being compared. So for me, Noor and I, because we're different genders, it's, it does happen sometimes, but a lot less. So we don't have that much pressure as, as much as that. Yeah. I, actually, I was thinking it's, it's more convenient. Right. Like it's like you have this guy that's 24 seven available to practice with you, just like you, you know, you do have your wife. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. More than training with on court, the fact is, as I told you, I have someone who understands my feelings like so many days throughout the week that I come back home drained mentally 
that I don't think a non-athlete, if I was married to a non-athlete, she would understand. Like, I'm grumpy. I'm just tired. I'm, I'm upset with the way I train today. I think I should have been stronger mentally on court today or in the gym. And I'm not proud of myself. And I come back home and I'm into my shell because I'm disappointed in myself. And another non-athlete partner wouldn't necessarily have understood this. And Noor talks me out of it. Or she leaves me to get myself out of it. Like, she knows what to do. She's felt it. And this feeling is is different and i keep insisting that it's very different than anything that i've experienced before what did you do today like how was your day today well today was a very unusual post-loss day usually i fly on the very very first flight that i can get back home so i change my flight i get back home be with my family and my friends and the flight and the first night after a loss i can't tell you how bad the sleep is just you keep replaying the match in your head subconsciously it's forced into your head I sleep and I wake up in the middle of the night thinking of the match. Try to force myself for an hour, another hour to sleep and then another half hour and then I'm awake again. It's very bad. But then today, because I have another tournament in three days in England, it wouldn't make sense to go back home and then come back to England again. So I'm here with my wife. She's been with me. We've been helping each other on court. So I went and coached her today. And then the PSA Foundation had an auction. Whoever is paying the most is going to get on court with me. So I played with that guy today. And then we went shopping with the baby and I just tried to get myself out of it because tomorrow, again, I have to get back into the gym and on, on the squash court because I have to prepare for the, for the next tournament. I can't, again, I can't feel sorry for myself and let it drag too long. So today was a good post-loss day, I would say. What have been your most proud wins? Like what have been your most proud moments? Even not wins, but moments, moments in your career. Proud, I would say the match that got me to world number one. When I beat Mohamed Sharbaki at the Tournament of Champions of the, in January 2019, had I won this match, I would have been world number one, and I did. And then it played all the flashbacks of, of my childhood years, my training years, my college years. You feel like it's all gathering into this one point that, okay, it's all paying off now. I've been, for the past 12 months, I've been the best player in the world. You can say that. And it's... It's something that even you get so close to it, you still have your doubts. Am I ever going to be able to do it? Am I ever going to make it? This was my proudest match. And it happened in a very good fashion as well. I was two love down, six two down in the third. And I managed to come back and win. So it was it was great. But my happiest moment, I would say, my first big title, which was the US Open in 2017. And Noor happened to win it on the same day. And it was the first ever married couple to win a major event on the same day in any sport. So it made a huge buzz. And it was just nothing that like I felt before. And until this very day, I managed to win two world championships afterwards. I managed to win, uh, thankfully, a lot of other titles. But nothing feels anything compared to this. Is it a chase now? Exactly. Sometimes like people ask, like, what it motivates you? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just hungry. Like, I just want to keep going. I, I don't guess have I... an answer to this question, honestly. Honestly, I was asked this question last yeah. November by a PSA commentator. She's a fellow PSA player, but she, she commentates as well. And she sat down with me and she said, Okay, Ali, now that you've achieved the world number one rankings for, and you've sustained it for a few months and you've won the world championships, what keeps motivating you? And I do not know. I just, as long as I'm in this sport, I want to be the best I can be. And I know if I, if I am the best I can be, then I can challenge to the top until, until my body breaks down. This is my motivation every single day. I want to be better. I want to be better. And, and I guess I'm extremely lucky as well to have Noor in my corner because she's very inspiring. Like she gave birth seven months ago. Two months later, she was back in the gym. Or two months and a half, she was back in the gym and she's now back on tour and she's challenging the top girls again. You feel kind of ashamed of yourself if, if you're not on the same level, you know? And it, it just, yeah. It's an impressive woman. Very impressive. And, and I, you know, when you're younger, I was married very young. I was married 24. We were engaged 22. So obviously, you weren't probably as mature as you are today. And obviously, in 10 years' time, hopefully, I'll be more mature than I am now. But... Uh, the criteria that you pick your, your wife on is it keeps differing every year as you mature. And I cannot believe I put weight now on whether this woman is inspiring to me or not. And if it's not, it's going to drag me down. And, and she is very inspiring. And you can see from her squash and the way she got back into, into the rhythm and uh, got back into things that she is the same in every field of life or every, like the way she takes care of our daughter, the way she takes care of her parents. The way, everything you know and it's very inspiring and it inspires me every day and it, it helps me big time no that's amazing i think that's true for the people we have around us in general too exactly this woman christine who we work with today i was like wow i want more of that 
Like she was, she was excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it just, it just motivates you to do with it. You know, it just motivates you. I was asked when I went to Harvard from the people at home, how different is it? Like, is it like nothing like you've seen before? And I said, absolutely not. It's the same curriculum. It's just two things. One is the way you taught things might be a bit better, but first and foremost is that you're surrounded by extremely highly motivated people. And if you do not as equally motivated, you're left behind. And this is exactly why the top schools or the top companies or the top whoever top institution, this is the best thing about it, is that you always know that you've got the best people around you, that they're going to lift you up. And if you're not lifted up, you're going to be left behind and you're going to fall down the pecking order, you know? So it doesn't make sense not to be motivated. So I guess this is the thing that helped me the most at Harvard. And this is the thing that helps me the most now being surrounded by Noor, by my elder brother, by my Karim Darwish, people that are always motivated. Yeah, I love that. That's interesting. It's like, it's actually just surrounded by more motivated. I love that. Because that is true. Very true. Like so I'm from Silicon Valley, it's just like a lot of motivated people. That's it. I was curious to hear more, like what role do coaches play in your success and in your life? A lot, a lot. I mean, as I tell you again, we go through a lot of doubts and in, in, in throughout our career. So thankfully, this loss, I know exactly what happened. I'll definitely talk to my coach and I've already talked to him and I'll talk to Noor, but I know I've talked to Noor extensively over the past 24 hours, but I know exactly what happened and I know what to work on. But so quite often you lose and you start doubting yourself. Am I in the right direction? Am I working on something that I shouldn't be or should I be working on something else? And this is exactly when you need your coach. You need guidance. I guess at this point, as I told you, we can all play all the shots extremely well. It's just what exactly you need to work on, how to connect the puzzle all together. I guess this is where your coach comes into play. And they frame your mindset the way you want it to be. Like when I was chasing the world number one spot, when I was world number two, I played a tournament in Qatar and I won it and I was getting closer to world number one. I'm a bit of a nerd or Noor says that I'm a big nerd, not a bit of a nerd, but I am. And I do have an Excel sheet that calculates the rankings. After I won, I calculated that if I do this in the next tournament, then I'm a world number one. I call my wife, I tell her that. I call my parents, I tell them that. I call uh, everyone I know around me, I, I tell them that. I call Karim Derwish, my coach. And I tell him, Karim, blah, 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 blah. I'm super excited. And he says, to be honest, I don't care about this. What I want now is for you to come back and train even harder for the next one. And he kept me grounded and he kept me in the right state of mind that I don't get too ahead of myself. And if he were as excited as everybody else, I would have gotten too excited and I would have probably messed up the next one. It's just those little things that the guidance that you need from people, its there is no magic button, right? They're not going to tell you something that you've never heard before, but just set you on the right track or on with the right mental state. And I guess this is where coaches are extremely important. And I guess it's, it's the same for you. I'm sure you've got mentors in your life, whether it be your wife, your parents, your it's somebody you've met at work. It's just in the moments of doubt or in the moments of overconfidence, you want someone to keep you grounded or someone to keep you motivated you need this person in your life and you have to trust them big time because if i see someone in the street that i don't really know and he tells me something yes i would take it and i'll think about it but are you credible enough for me but for me karim darwish is very credible because he's been there and because i know him personally i know how keen he is on me is his coaching more mindset coaching or is it still technical and skill like hey let's let's practice like your drops or let's practice the backcourt he does a bit of that but then Noor and I always have this debate and it's it's quite a big debate in, in the world of squash that some coaches are extremely technical and they get so much into detail with their players. And for me, it's not the school of work I like to work with. It gets you too confused. For me, for me, I like someone to be with me, tells me the bigger pictures, some technical things here and there, but then puts me on the right track mentally more than anything. And it's just Sometimes when the the coach feeds you every single information, you become a little brain dead. When you get on court, when the coach is not there, you just you can't think without them. It is this fine balance that you want to find, and I guess it's this balance is different to, from one to another. And for me, I like less technical, more mindset. For me, I just uh, learned a boosted shot. Is that what you guys call it? What's that? A boosted shot with the back corner where you have to hit it off the angle. The boost. The boost shot. Yeah, man, there's, I, I just learned that one this week. That's a tough one. But you guys, you guys make it look so easy. Yeah. When I'm learning it, I had a, a friend coach me and he's like, 
I'm like, just let's practice this one. I can't have a bunch more. So I'm imagining if you have all these little yeah. nuances. Exactly. So you want to take it one step at a time. I am really curious. What's that actual day in the life like? Like a, a standard day when you're not at a tournament? As I, as I touched upon it at the beginning of the call, so I wake up at 8.30, yeah. around 8.30. I have my, my breakfast, which is usually a smoothie of five tablespoons of oats, a spoon of peanut butter, a banana, and milk. Any type of milk. Sometimes regular milk, sometimes almond milk. And then I drink it, and I feel like it gives me enough energy. And at the same time, it is heavy, but it's not something that I've put like eggs or something that makes me very heavy when I go to the, to the first session. And then I go at 10 p.m. Uh, for my first session, and it's usually a fitness session, whether it be in the gym or on the track, or it's usually it's three times of strength and conditioning in the gym and a couple of times of cardio, whether it be on the track. It depends on how close you are to the tournament. If it's the tournament is approaching, it's more explosive stuff on the court. And if it's something that you're in the off-season, it's usually on the track, more endurance stuff. That's five times a week from 10 to 11.30, I would say 10 to 11. And then I have I have a snack, a banana or an apple or whatever it may be, or a protein bar. And then I'm back on court again at noon or 12.30 for an hour, an hour and a half for technical work, either by myself. I like to spend a lot, a lot of time on court with myself to learn more about the racket and about myself or with my coach or with a hitting partner, but just you're doing drills. You're doing things that you know so that you only work on specific things. And then I go back to the to the house, shower, a good lunch. It has to contain all the necessary nutrients, carbs, protein, and vegetables. And then I take an hour nap, and then I'm back on court again at 7 p.m. for match play. And that's the beauty of living in Egypt. You've got so many great players that you can play with a top 50 player every single day for a month without having to repeat any of them just because of how good the nation is doing at the moment. So we're extremely lucky in that regard. And we all live within a 40-mile radius, so you don't have to drive for crazy distances to be able to play with them. And then I play from 7 to 8.30, and then back again, dinner exactly like lunch, veggies, protein, and carbs, and obviously showered before, and then I spend a bit of time with, uh, with Noor, and if, the, if my daughter is still up, then I go to bed around midnight, and then again at 8 in the morning. All that from Saturday to Thursday, and then Thursday evening, and all of Friday is off because Friday is our weekend back home. Those are the day and a half that I take off every every week. What do you like doing for fun on the days off? Family time, man. You don't play more squash? No, <laughs> no, enough of squash. On the weekend, I don't want to hear a thing about squash. As I told you, I'm, I come from a very family oriented uh, background. On Thursday, I usually see my friends, and it's usually. I like to stay in. I very rarely go out. It's usually at a friend's place or at my place, and we gather together, PlayStation, playing cards, chat with each other. And then on Friday, I have to go to Noor's parents and then to my parents. And then in the evening, whether it may be, again, friends or just chill a bit with Noor, or, and then in my downtime, I love entrepreneurship. And I love to hear from my friends who work at startups or have founded startups or I watch the likes of Shark Tank. I'm into entrepreneurship, so in my downtime, I like to read about these things, but uh, unfortunately, I don't have much time as much as I would like to. Do you have any entrepreneur ideas or things you're curious about to do? I mean, my brother and my cousin have started a farming business that they're doing really well at. I'm hoping of, of joining soon, and I want to do something in the sports industry as well, whether it be sports-specific or sports in general. I'm very passionate about mixing the sports and education sectors because this is what the things I know the most about and I've, I've got experience in. So I'd like to replicate the idea of having sports people that are doing very well at school and very well at their sports. I would like to have a sports school back home or something of that uh, sort. It's because of the president that Egypt, because Egypt, like squash in America, people don't really know it. They know racquetball. Yeah, I know. I know. Tell me about it. I'm coming through the airport immigration and, and what are you here for? I'm playing a squash tournament. <laughs> what? Squash tournament, sir. What is that? It's a bit like tennis. It's a, you know, you have to explain it sometime. No, I guess, I guess it's it's a tricky question. It's not the vegetable. You know, we have a, the squash vegetable. It's not the vegetable. I know, exactly. I always say that as a joke. It's the million-dollar question, really, that nobody has got a definite answer for. But it's uh, in the late 90s, our president was playing for fun. And then there was this one superstar that was coming out or coming out of juniors. And he was doing really well, Ahmed Barada. And they staged a tournament in front of the pyramids for him. And all of us like non-squash players and or non-squash people and squash people would go and watch him and he would he would be on the you know back in the day there wasn't so many satellite channels it would be like 
10 channels on your TV and he would be on the main channel. So all of us would be watching, would be getting behind them. And so all of us aspired to be on this stage one day. So a lot of my generation started playing. So the base of players have increased. So by statistical probabilities, you know that more talent is going to grow out of this pyramid. And then Ahmed Barada did it. And then Amr Shabana did it. And then they made us believe, believe that we can do it as well. I mean, they're from our nation. We see them train every day. They give us advice. Why can we not be like them? Like it's like a snowball effect, I guess. Like one gives it to the other and then gives it to the other and so on and so forth. And on both genders as well, the women are doing extremely well. Someone was telling me that squash is not in the Olympics because they complain too much. Is this true? I mean, that's one of the very weak theories, in my opinion. I think the main, the main reason is political. I mean, when a, an influential country guarantees that they're going to get a medal in it, because who decides, who decides oh. what sport is going to get into it? It's the uh, International Olympic Committee. And who really rules it or runs the International Olympic Committee? The, the powerful countries, whether it be the US, China. Yeah. If they do guarantee a medal, they're going to lobby for it, right? As of now, it's not really the case. So, so they always pick. So it was in Japan last year and they picked karate. They picked it over because Japan knew that they were going to get a, a, a medal. You know, this is how it works. And obviously, there is, there is a commercial side to it. If Egypt or if squash brings more money into it and more viewership, then it might be better. Obviously, we're not at this level yet, but I think it's more political than anything. That's my opinion. Because in America, everybody is like pickleball. Have you have you played this game? I have never, but I've watched a lot of it and, and people are starting to open courts at home now for the first time. Yeah. Paddle is growing big time in Egypt and now pickleball is catching up. Yeah, I kind of wonder how to get squash more popular because I, I love it, man. I play. It's just like it's more intense. Like every ma- point is like match point, it feels like. Yeah, exactly, exactly. No, I, I think it's a brilliant sport. I think it's got its challenges that it, if, but I, I mean, it, these challenges are in uh, many different sports, but it's quite an expensive sport. It, it's not accessible to the general public. And then it's not like soccer. Anybody can go to the streets and, 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 and roll a couple of socks together to make a ball and just play the game. You know, it's, it's not the case in squash. You have to have the infrastructure for it. You have to have the rackets. You have to have the ball. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to get too political here, but I guess also the governing bodies can do more. Their intentions are always good. They're working so hard to increase the publicity of our sport, but I think there can be better vision and better execution for it. Yeah, it seems like they're trying. Like in Austin, there's, I think there's maybe four courts and we have over a million people living here. And I've been actually trying to find a squash coach and I can't find one here. I literally cannot find a coach in, you know, it's a pretty big state, Texas. Exactly, exactly, yeah. It's tricky, it's tricky, but hopefully we, we, we can get there one day. Okay, I got to ask selfishly, man. So I'm, an, I'm, I'm not very good at squash. Like, I'm okay, right? But what are some, some suggestions uh, that you think that can improve most players? I'm going to make sure my friends don't listen to this. No, 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 but a, <laughs> no, a couple of things I always say to people that are getting to a good level, but they want to take it to that next step, to that next level. One is spend a lot of time on court by yourself. Believe it or not, I know it's boring, but it makes you understand a lot of the dimensions of the court, of your swing, when to come down on the swing, when to slow your swing. These things, the more you play with people, you're so focused on winning and losing that because of how competitive you are, that you don't really think of the technique much. And no matter how many times your coach tells you about the technique, nobody can feel it except for yourself. Look at the top 10 players. We're, I would like to say that we're all great players, but how many different techniques there are? So many of us play with different techniques. So there isn't a, a rule book for how the technique can be. Obviously, there are a few things, but then you feel it yourself. Something is going to click for you. The more you spend time on court with yourself, the better it is. So that's the first thing. The second is the movement. It's all about the movement. When I go on the tennis court, I can swing or right, but my movement is very off because I'm not used to it. So again, spend time on court by yourself without the ball, getting to each corner with the minimum number of steps you can. And the more you do that, the less it is or the easier it is for, for you to cover the court when you're playing a, a regular match. You know how it is when you start driving? Every time you have to, to shift the gear, you have to think, how do I do it? And then it becomes on the autopilot. Same thing as you walk on the court. The more you walk on, the more it becomes in the back of your head when you play that you don't have to think about. And all of a sudden, you feel yourself a lot quicker on court, even though you're not personally quicker, but then your footwork gets you to the ball a lot faster. 
So these two things make a huge difference in my opinion. So more time on court by myself and then practice this, the movement around the courts. Exactly. So like from the T, just out left, out back. Exactly. So six corners, we call them six corners, two front, two back and two in the middle, you know, across the T line, across okay. the middle line. There is actually a, an episode on, on a website called Squash Skills, what I've done, which I've done with them. I've explained how exactly I've, I do these. And, and I think they might be beneficial if you find them beneficial. If not, there are so many people that have, have done it on YouTube as well, explain how to move on the court and they might be beneficial. Oh, this is cool. It might require a subscription, but, uh, but it will be worth it because this is not the only episode. They've interviewed all the top players, all the top coaches in the world, and you're always going to find something interesting. And for all levels, for beginners, for top athletes, for juniors, you're going to be find it very interesting if you're really keen on, on improving your game. Oh, I love that. When you're alone on the court, what are you, what's it going on in your head? It's fascinating. The beginning is always boring because, you know, getting on court and starting the workout and it's not a physical workout it's more in the head like Mm. i have something that i want to work on every time once i get in it i have one uh, headphone in one of the ears so that i can hear the ball with the other ear and there is music playing in the background but i'm really focused on whether it be on the day i want to focus on my technique or i want to focus on where i want to hit the ball or whether it be on my movement sometimes but it's really fascinating when you when you get into the rhythm you really feel it and you feel like you're getting better by every shot or by every session. And I love it. I love spending time on court by myself. Tomorrow, for example, this is going to be my first session after a loss. I'm going to spend time by myself on court tomorrow for an hour or so. I hope. My brother has this phrase. He's like, there's a big difference between practicing and playing. Ah, a huge difference. A huge difference. Practice is what makes you play better. You know, I hate the word practice makes perfect because you're never going to reach the perfection. Practice makes better. But if you really believe that practice makes perfect, then why are we still practicing if I'm number one in the world or if I'm world champion? <laughs> and, and Federer said it, you know, once he reached the world number one, he realized that he needs to work harder, not less, because he knows that everyone is chasing him. And he, if he stands still, he's falling behind. Just you practice to become better every day. And this is the beauty of it, that you can always get better, always. So it's exciting in a way. Yeah, it's also amazing because I think people assume, number one, that you won't be bored. I'm like, oh, he must go out there and you must love it. You get, oh, I can't wait to get to the court. No, no. I mean, I do get never bored, but I do get uh, fed up sometimes. I'm drained mentally and physically, especially by the end of the season. Uh, you've played 10, 12 tournaments in a span of eight, nine months. And when you're reaching the latter stages of every tournament, it's like a 10-day tournament. And then two days before it to get used to the jet lag or whatever it may be. And then flying there and coming back from there and it does take its toll on, on your body and your head and being away from your family. I do get fed up after a while, of course. But then this is, again, what you gain from experience, how to manage your schedule and how to do it smartly so that you don't dream yourself out or you don't wear yourself out. I had a tough day. And then this is going to sound weird, but I was like, I'm talking to Ali tonight. I know he's going to have some like next level, like, I don't know, just uh, you're, the, you're the best. And it's just like you have this, there is Thank you, a level man. of work you're still putting in. I think people assume you get to the top and you're just like, okay, I just coast here. And it's, it's almost the opposite. I wish, I wish, I wish, <laughs> I wish, you know, but it's, uh, no, it's far from it. It's far from it. Do you use any apps? Like you, you said you did Excel for the, uh, the rankings. Do you do any other apps or tracking stuff? Well, I do wear Whoop, you know, Whoop, right? Yeah. Do they sponsor you? No, no, no. I mean, so the founder was my captain at Harvard. For my first year. That's cool. Yeah, extremely lucky that then to know him and to still get advice from him sometimes when I need things and stuff. I do wear it uh, ever since really. Actually, our team was the first, was using the first beta version to try it on us. I've been using it for a long while. I've stopped. I've been inconsistent with it. But for the past three years, I haven't taken it off a single day. It tracks my sleep. It tracks my, my recovery, which is great. And I also have another Excel sheet so I have every single day, my three sessions, what exactly I did. And then I have a comment section or learning section in the next column where I say what I've learned today, what I need to work on in the next days. It's something that keeps me alert and, and aware of what I need to work on rather than being in, I guess, confused or, or lost of what I really need to work on. And then when I have a lack of confidence or when I have an injury or when I have any of these things, I go back to these moments that have been similar to what I'm going through now. And when I read what I felt at the moment, it relaxes me a bit, you know? 
like it's not the end of the world you've been through it ali and you've come out stronger so now why not can you do why can't you do the same this time so it just it keeps me in a better place just to keep track of it every single day wow that's awesome man yeah yeah i know it's great how long can people be pros for like 10 20 years yeah science has, has evolved now that you see the cristiano ronaldo's of the world the federers of the world they play until the age of 40 i'm not sure if you, if you watch soccer much there is a goalkeeper who used to play for juventus and for italy Juan Luigi Buffon, and he just signed, he's 44 years of age, and he's signed a two-year contract with Parma. So he's going to continue until the age of 46. Obviously, this is too much for a squash player, but now the norm is to retire at the age of 37, 38, and then you can start at the age of 18. It can really be a 20-year a career. For me, obviously, I didn't start until I was 23, and I don't see myself playing until 40 and, and even 37. I'm too curious to start other things in life and to learn about other things in life so i don't know i've never set a day in my life i always sit with myself after every season see okay do i really want to continue if yes then let's do it if not then not and and it's it's never taking me more than a than a second to think about it you know it has because i've had opportunities thrown at me and should i do them should i not but i've always decided no i want to keep going for more I'm, i want to keep getting better at what I'm doing and I'm still enjoying it. I'm still loving it. So, so why rush it? I can always go back to the private sector later on. Yeah. How could people support you? Like I'm, I'm like such a, I'm like, I would be every match if I could. <laughs> man, anyway, man, the fact that you're watching the matches every day and, and I mean, yeah. to be in touch, I mean, now we've got each other numbers and, and to be in touch before and after matches, that would be a pleasure, man. That's uh, the moral support is believe it or not. I mean, with all my sponsors, the ones I'm happiest with, are the ones that we really have a connection rather than just they support me with, with money and I put their logo on and that's it. And then I, I attend a couple of events a year. It's more of we become a family. We become in this together. You feel like when I lose, they lose. You know what I mean? Those partnerships are the best. And I, I'm extremely lucky with Dallop, the leading brand of, of rackets in squash, really. I've been with them for over six years now or five and a half years now. And you feel it when they're behind the glass. They're really behind you. CIB, the best bank in Egypt, the CEO was the national champion. Wow. And before and after every single match, he keeps texting us. And he's with us with his heart and soul. And these things, obviously, we do appreciate their financial support, big, big time and their equipment support and all this. But this feeling of, of being behind you is the best feeling that we can ask for really as support. Uh, you got it, man. Yeah. <sighs> what a journey. <laughs> yeah, what a journey. It is an interesting one. It is a very fun one. Did you have an option to go instead when you graduated to do something else? I did. So I studied a bit of consulting in my senior year. I was a, I was a Harvard, uh, I was a mechanical engineering uh, uh, student. And I did my, uh, my thesis, my graduating project on the solar energy. And because we have such a, a massive source of, of electricity, which is the sun in Egypt that is always shining in Egypt, we have a massive empty uh, piece of land in Egypt. It is the future of, of renewable energy in Egypt, and I really wanted to get into this. And it's never too late. I might get back into this after squash. But as I told you, you know, the fate happened to bring me to, to play squash by serving in the army and just deciding to do it for a year and enjoying it and having my wife and my elder brother and Mike Way, the, my Harvard head coach, the three of them who I look up to keeping pushing me. It just it felt right to do it. But then you never know uh, what the future brings, really. Yeah, man. Well, I'm uh, I'm gonna go work out. You inspired me. I was like, oh, <laughs> it's been a, it's I been love a tough that. day, but I'm dude. I I love seeing you play. I'm gonna be texting you when you win, when you lose. I'll be there. Please, please, yeah. Let's stay in touch. And and uh, when I'm next in Texas or when you're next anywhere that we our paths can cross, please let me know. Hundred percent, man. That is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as I did making it for you. And Ali is such a star. Go give him some love on Twitter. It's Ali Farag, F-A-R-A-G, and Instagram, Ali M-R Farag. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go play some squash together. Before you go, tweet me at Noah Kagan or Instagram at Noah Kagan. DM me. I love knowing what you think of these episodes. Also, go set up for my newsletter. Do people still get newspapers? Anyways, that's okdork.com or sendfox.com slash Noah. I love sending you guys stuff. It's coming out today, actually. I think it's going to be amazing. I love to send awesome things to your inbox. That's okdork.com. Go sign up for the weekly newsletter. Finally, shout out to my amazing team. Thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com. He makes these episodes. Thank you to Mitchell, Jeremy, George, Hubert, Cam, Sasa, Nikki, and Jen. 
And the dork deep. Finally, shout out to Chris Gurion and Victor Pope. Y'all do all this copywriting and email magic. I seriously am grateful. I love that you guys are part of AppSoon. I feel very lucky to be a part of you and be around y'all. Thank you for what you do. Have an awesome day. What's your favorite sport? Mine squash. Ooh, I'm hungry, but I don't, I don't really like eating squash. I guess squash spaghetti is pretty good.